Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now in Revelation 20. I'm going to cover in this audio verses 7 through 15. I'm going to entitle this section, Gog and Magog and the Great White Throne. Our context is this. In the book of Revelation, the first three verses, we talked about Satan being bound during the millennium, and I gave two basic theories of what the millennium is. And then in verses 4 through 6 of Revelation 20, we talked about two deaths and two resurrections, the first and second resurrection, the first and second death. And so here we are, Revelation 20, verse 7 through 8. When the thousand years are completed, that's the millennium, the thousand years. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. Now, notice this is during the millennium. Whether you're pre-mill or whether you're non-pre-mill, you've got a war with Gog and Magog going on during the millennium, which shows that any view of the millennium is not a utopian view, and even with a post-mill view, the millennium is not a utopia. There's a war going on during the millennium on anybody's view. Now, if we look at a an Old Testament symbol of the millennium, we can see this idea that there's still evil in the millennium. Ezekiel 47, verse 9. Every kind of living creature that swarms will live wherever the river flows. This is the river of the water of life flowing out of the temple, going down into the Arabah Valley, going down to the Dead Sea. It's a, a symbol of the New Testament kingdom of God, the New Testament temple. There will be a huge number of fish because this water goes there. Since the water will become fresh, there will be life everywhere the river goes. And that's talking about the water of life, Christ, during the New Covenant age. We get to Ezekiel 47:11. Yet in swamps, its yet its swamps and marshes will not be healed; they will be left for salt. So even though the new covenant is percolating through the earth, you still got swamps and marshes left, and that describes the way the situation is now on earth. We read in Matthew 13:37 through 43 the parable of the weeds and the the wheat and the weeds, or the wheat and the tares. We read this, he, Jesus, replied, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed. These are the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the children of the evil one and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the harvesters are angels. Therefore, just as the weeds are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. So we see the end of the age here. We've got problems. We've got bad guys being gathered and thrown into the fire. Just like we're going to see here, Gog and Magog, the bad guys are going to get beaten and thrown into the fire. Verse 41, Matthew 13, The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather from his kingdom all who cause sin and those guilty of lawlessness. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in their father's kingdom. So, there's a balanced view of the millennium here. Satan's going to be released from his prison. Now, remember, he'd been bound during the millennium. During the first three verses, Satan was bound so that he could no longer deceive the nations. So he's going to be released. He's going to try one more one more time. He will come out to deceive the nations. And again, that word deceive is key because it ties you back to the first three verses where the devil was bound so he could no longer deceive the nations. Now he's unbound. He's released so, so that he can deceive the nations. That's what he's trying to do. Now, these nations are called Gog and Magog. Before I get to Gog and Magog, though, let's talk about this idea of the devil and his demons being released at the end of time. It has been noted, I think without controversy, that there is a sudden upsurge in demonic activity whenever you have a great spiritual event. You think about Jesus. Jesus is born. He comes to the earth. And what's happened? There are demons everywhere trying to control people 
in Israel. The devil is trying his best to stop God's upcoming great spiritual victory. But I've got a question. Why would God allow the devil to be released at the very end of the messianic age as the church, the new covenant, is being spread over the earth as the waters cover the sea? Why would God let the devil do that? Now, this is just speculation on my part. I'm saying so that he can publicly put him under once and for all so that people will see his last gasp, his last vomit, and say, okay, devil, this is what you're trying to do. You're beaten. You're gone. The evil evil and rebellion against God will be clearly and finally shown. There won't be any more question about it. That's my speculation anyway. Now let's get to the term Gog and Magog. Now, of course, this is a famous, a favorite expression amongst futurist prophecy nuts. Is it Russia because of Tushak and, and Meshach and Tubal? Meshach is supposed to stand for Moscow and Ross is supposed to stand for Russia, which is etymologically absurd. That comes from Ezekiel. You've, I'm sure if you've listened to prophet, futurist prophecy nut stuff, you've heard this. Well, actually, Gog and Magog is a frequent standard expression used in Jewish writings to refer to rebellious nations, the rebellious nations of Psalm 2. Now, I get this from the commentary, a commentary of the Revelation of St. John the Divine written by G.B. Caird, theologian, 1966. He has many sites to the Talmud showing that Gog and Megog just refer to a genetic, generic rebellious nations mentioned in Psalm 2. Let me read Psalm 2, verses 1 through 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. So John is using Gog and Magog, a standard Talmudic, a standard rabbinic expression for the enemies of God. He's using that as a symbol to refer to unspecified nations fighting against God at the end. And that's what I take it as Gog and Magog is just those who are opposed to God at the end of the church age right before Jesus comes back physically to establish the final state. Now, the term Gog and Magog comes from Ezekiel chapter 38. There's a split of opinion as to what Ezekiel is referring to. I'm going to get into that in great detail when I finally get to Ezekiel. Here are a couple of options. It could be referring to Haman in the book of Esther, Gog and Magog. This is the theory of James Jordan and Gary DeMar. It's a very interesting theory. I go into it in great detail when I get to Ezekiel 37. David Chilton says that Gog and Magog is referring to Antiochus Epiphanes, referring to the Syrians, the Seleucids, during the Maccabean period, when the Maccabees were fighting the Seleucids. It doesn't really matter for our purposes what Ezekiel is referring to. Let's just take Gog and Magog as enemies of Christ, stirred up by the devil, trying to fight the church one more time, coming at the church which is going to be surrounded in the camp, in the camp of the saints, now, the number of these nations, the number of people in the armies of these nations, I guess you would say, the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. Now, you hear that expression, sand of the seashore, and you think, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Actually, it's not as depressing as that because sand of the seashore refers in the Old Testament to God's enemies being gathered together. They're as big as the sand of the seashore, but they're gathered together so that God can Bop them in the head and destroy them. So when Gog and Magog are gathered together as the sand of the seashore, the number of them, God is gathering his final enemies together for one last disastrous defeat for them. Now, two of Israel's greatest victories were fought against enemies, which were numerous as, quote, unquote, sands of the seashore. For example, Joshua in Joshua 11:4. 4. 
They went out with all their armies, a multitude as numerous as the sand on the seashore, along with the vast number of horses and chariots. That was one of Joshua's enemies. But Joshua won anyway. We drop down two verses to Joshua 11:6. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for at this time tomorrow I will cause all of them to be killed before Israel. You are to hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. Drop down to verse 8, Joshua 11. The Lord handed them over to Israel, and they struck them down, pursuing them as far as greater Sidon and Mizrapah and to the east as far as the valley of Mizpah. They struck them down, leaving no survivor. The enemies that Joshua struck down there was a large confederacy of Canaanites. Joshua had a great victory. They were over an army that was as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Gideon, Judges 7:12. Now the Midianites, Amalekites, and all the Ketamites had settled down in the valley like a swarm of locusts. And their camels were as innumerable as the sand on the seashore. So you see, this is a common Hebrew metaphor talking about a lot. This was not just the enemies, this was their camels were as innumerable as the sand on the seashore. And we all know who won that battle, Gideon versus the Midianites. So, Gog and Magog, the number of which is as great as the sand of the seashore, that doesn't mean a thing. God's going to beat them, they're all gathered together so he can take care of them quickly. He can dispatch them more easily. Now let's take one pot shot at the futurist here, because this battle of Gog and Magog has become famous in futurist lore, referring to a big battle at the end of time. Now, I'm going to show you how, if you take Ezekiel 37 and 38 literally, how absurd it is to say that it refers to a future battle. Now, of course, dispensationalist futurists love to say, to take the, bottle, the book of Revelation literally, but boy, do they have a problem with this when they start talking about a literal interpretation of Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38. First of all, we see in Ezekiel 38, 11-13 that this war with Gog and Magog will be provoked by Gog and Magog warning Israel's cattle. Not their oil, not their computer technology, not their military missile technology, but their cattle. Ezekiel 38, 11-13, you will say, I will advance against the land of open villages. I will come against a tranquil people who are living securely, all of them living without walls and without bars or gates, in order to seize spoil and carry off plunder, to turn your hand against ruins now inhabited and against a people gathered from the nations who have been acquiring cattle and possessions and who live at the center of the world. Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish with all his rulers will ask you, Have you come to see spoil? Have you mobilized your assembly to carry off plunder, to make off with silver and gold, to take cattle and possessions to, see, to seize plenty of spoil? So there we have the great cattle battle supposed to happen in the future. Second of the absurd details of this battle, if you put it in the future, the battle will be fought with all of Gog and Magog's forces on horseback. The whole army of Gog and Magog will be on horseback in the 21st plus century. Ezekiel 38:15. And come with your place in the remotest parts of the earth, you and many peoples with you who are all riding horses. A huge assembly, a powerful army. So Gog and Magog are going to be riding horses. Not tanks, not jeeps, not motorcycles, horses. Third absurd detail, if we put this in the future, the battle will be fought with all of Gog's and Magog's soldiers carrying bucklers, swords, and shields. A buckler is a small shield. A shield is a big shield. Ezekiel 38, 4-5, this is the King James, And I will turn thee back and put hooks into thy jaws, and I will bring thee forth 
and all that army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed with all sorts of armor, even a great company with bucklers, that's the small shields, and shields, the big shields, all of them handling swords. Oh, this modern battle at the end of the time, at the end of the world, is going to be fought with leather shields and swords. Really? Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya with them, all of them with shield and helmet. All of them. The whole army going to be carrying swords. That sound like a future battle to you. Fourth detail showing the absurdity of a future battle against Gog and Magog in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 39.3, Then I will knock your bow from your left hand and make your arrows drop from your right hand. Verse 9, Ezekiel 39. Then the inhabitants of Israel's cities will go out, kindle fires, and burn the weapons, the small and large shields, the small shields of the bucklers, and the large shields, the bows and arrows, the clubs and spears. For seven years they will use them to make fires. So, the big battle at the end of the world, which they identify, well, they call it Gog and Magog at the end of the world, is going to be fought with bows and arrows? Round little bucklers? Clubs? Ooh, that's modern warfare. Fifth absurd detail in Ezekiel. A, a fifth detail in Ezekiel, which makes it absurd to refer to a future battle. Israel will be using wood to heat with. Not oil, not solar, not gasoline, but wood. Ezekiel 39, verse 10, first part of the verse. They will not gather wood from the countryside or cut it down from the forest, for they will use the weapons to make fires. So that's how they're going to heat themselves. Now, as I've said, this is not referring, Ezekiel 38 is not referring to a battle at the end of time, the battle of Gog and Magog, even though the term is used, Gog and Magog. But it's not referring to a future battle. It can't because of those five details I just gave you. It's either Haman in the book of Esther, or it's Antiochus Epiphanes, or something else that Ezekiel's referring to, which was an ancient battle, not a battle in the future. Now, as far as Revelation is concerned, is where, where we are, it's symbolic of some unspecified nations that are going to be raised up at the end of the church age, right before Jesus comes back. Now, it's interesting that pre-mills often refer to this battle of Gog and Magog as the battle of Armageddon. They conflate the two. We've already talked about Armageddon, or Armageddon, in Revelation 16.16, 16, which says this, And he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. Now, this is when the tr sixth trumpet blows, now, if you're a pre-mill, dispensationalist, pre-trib, pre-mill, the sixth trumpet is blown during the tribulation, which is a thousand plus years before the end of the millennium. So how can Armageddon refer to the battle of Gog and Magog, which is at the end of the millennium? I mean, <laughs> the tribulation is more than a thousand years before the end of time, and Gog and Magog is at the end of the church age, at the end of the millennium. At the end, well, actually, it's at the end of the millennium, according to their scheme. That's over a thousand years later. A thousand years separate the Battle of Armageddon and the Battle of Magog. So that's absurd. I mentioned in Revelation 16 that Har is mountain, the mountain of Megiddo, and it was meant to be used as a symbol to talk about Mount Carmel, where the prophets of Baal were beaten, and the plain of Megiddo where Joshua ran out against the Pharaoh Necho in 609 B.C. and got himself killed, and people mourned over Joshua for years after that. It's, it's a symbol of a place of mourning, which, of course, is going to happen when Jerusalem got wiped out by the Romans in AD 70. It's not talking about a big battle at the end of the world. Now, pre-mills, or dispensations pre-mills in particular, love to say that Gog and Magog refers to present-day Russia. I grew up on this stuff. I remember, oh, Meshach is Moscow and Ross is Russia. As I said earlier, 
those terms, that's a mere coincidence that those Hebrew terms refer to Russia. And besides, Russia is totally disintegrated now. That terrible communist nation is gone. I don't know what the preacher, how the the futurist prophecy nuts have adjusted their their newspaper eschatology to account for that. I'm sure they have. I don't keep up with them anymore. Now, let me make one more comment before I leave these verses. The battle of Gog and Magog is to keep us from being too optimistic about the millennium, the church age. Now, it is true that pessimillennialists like the futurists, like the pre-mills, like the, some amills, and like the dispensationalists, they are too pessimistic about the ability of the church to spread out through the world. They, they talk about we can't polish those brass rails on a sinking ship and all that kind of stuff. But on the other hand, there are some post-mills who are too optimistic, especially the political post-mills who say, ah, oh, the church will spread and everybody will love one another. We'll all be sitting around singing Kumbaya and war will be banished even before Jesus comes back. No, no, no. There's going to be battles during this new covenant age. We can't be too optimistic either. We go now to Revelation 20, verses 9 and 10. And they, that's the numerous soldiers of Gog and Magog, and they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast, that's the sea beast, and the false prophets, that's the land beast, apostate Israel, are also. They've already been thrown in the lake of fire in a previous chapter. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Might not be a previous chapter, previous verse, let's put it that way. I can't remember exactly where it is. So who are this camp of the saints? Well, that's reminiscent of the military formation of Israel under Moses. If you read the book of Numbers, you know, they, Moses goes into great detail about how the camp has got to be laid out at, on, as they march, and then as they stop marching and they, and, they, and they set up their camp, and then when they break camp, it's really interesting, actually, if you get into the, the weeds about all that. But so camp of the saints does sound like the camp of the Old Testament saints in the Old Testament. But anyway, this is the New Testament saints. And the camp of the saints is also called the beloved city. Well, that's referring to the New Jerusalem, which is the congregation of New Covenant believers. We're going to get to that in the next chapter. And it's interesting here. we got all the bad actors being thrown in the lake of fire. Why? Because that's preliminary to the establishment of the New Covenant, the New Jerusalem, all over the, all over the earth. In order for that to happen, the bad guys have got to be taken care of first, and they are in verse 20, in chapter 20, and then in chapter 21, the good guys are going to show up in New Jerusalem. Now notice in the vision, in Paul's vision, in John's vision, fire came down from heaven. Now, is this to be literal fire at the end of the world? I do not think so. It's interesting to me that David Chilton, who takes a lot of things symbolically that I, that I don't, I take things, some of his symbols I take literally as I've gone through his commentary on Revelation, but here he thinks it's literal, which is kind of ironic. I don't think so. I think this is talking about destruction because fire is the standard symbol in Revelation for destruction from God. It's a symbol. We see in Revelation 8, verses 5, 7, and 8, this, And the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar, that's the golden altar, with coals, and cast it into the earth. Cast it onto the earth, or onto the land, actually. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings and an earthquake. The first angel sounded, and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood. Fire? Fire from the altar, fire mingled with blood was cast upon the earth, and a third part of the trees was burnt up because of the fire. The grass was burnt up, and the second angel sounded, as it were, a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea, and a third part of the sea became blood. So there, in Revelation 8, we see fire is obviously being used as a symbol of judgment. That's not difficult. Revelation 11:5. if anyone wants to harm them, that's the two witnesses. Fire comes from their mouths 
and consumes their enemies. If anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. So fire coming out of the mouths of the prophets. This is again a vision. This is not actually happening on earth. The fire is standing for the judgment that these Old and New Testament witnesses to God were preaching. Revelation 16.8. The fourth, Revelation 16.8 refers to the fourth bold judgment which was poured out on the sun. And then the sun scorched people with fire from the sun. So there's another symbol of judgment I didn't mention in Revelation 8. That was the seventh seal. All that fire being cast on the earth and into the sea. Great mountain burning on into the sea. So that's what the fire is. Fire came down from heaven. You notice it's coming down from heaven. In those examples I just gave you, the fire also came down from heaven. Revelation 8, seventh seal. Fire was cast onto the earth, cast onto the earth, cast into the sea. In Revelation 16, 8, the fire came from the sun, which is from above. So... Fire came down from heaven. This is the same way that the nation of Israel and the nation of Rome were judged in the great judgments. The same way the nations of Gog and Magog and the devil who inspired those nations, they're going to get judged too. They're going to be destroyed. We go now to Revelation 20 verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. Now the great white throne is universally acknowledged to be a symbol of the throne from which God judges everything and everybody. And there was somebody sitting on that throne and says, him who sat upon it. And most people say it was God. I, mean, I don't know why, you know, you didn't, well, I guess in Ezekiel you had God sitting on a throne presented in some way to John's vision. But it could be Jesus because it's a white throne. Jesus sat on a white cloud in Revelation 14, 14 and on a white horse in Revelation 6, 2 and 19, 11. So maybe he's sitting on a white throne now. Could be. Burkhoff's systematic theology says this, Christ will be the judge at the last day, the crowning honor of his kingship. So it makes sense that he would be sitting on that throne. All the great ecumenical creeds, Apostles' Creed and Nicene Creed, give the honor to Christ. He shall come to judge the quick and the dead. So he's the one doing the judging. John 5:27, And he, the Father, gave him, the Son, authority to execute judgment because he's the Son of Man. Son of Man is Jesus. Jesus executes judgment, so I, I have no problem saying that's Jesus sitting on that great white throne, even though that's not often believed. From whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. In other words, ain't nothing on earth and heaven going to stand against the, the judge, whether it's God or Jesus. Ain't nobody going to stand against this. Revelation 20, verse 12, And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books, that's plural, books, were opened, and another book, singular, was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which are written in the books, plural, according to their deeds. Now, this can be a little tricky. First of all, we've got to look to identify the dead. And I saw the dead. That's the wicked dead only, not the righteous dead. How do we know that? From the context. With verse 5 in Revelation 20, we use that phrase, the rest of the dead. The rest of the dead came to life. You remember in that passage? And so, and we said there, that was the wicked dead. And even easier than that, in the next thir verses, 13, 14, and 15, we're going to be talking about death and Hades and the lake of fire, and Christians aren't going to have anything to do with that. So this is the unrighteous dead. They're standing before the throne. Why would dead men be standing in John's vision? Would be, that would be strange. Well, spiritually dead men undergo resurrection just like righteous dead men do. Remember, Jesus spoke of the resurrection of the just and the unjust, John 5, verse 29, a key verse, by the way. And the dead will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. There are the two resurrections right there. So 
But the main point here I'm trying to emphasize is that the bad guys are going to come to a resurrection of judgment. Those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. So that's why they're standing. They were raised so they could get thrown into the lake of fire. I will, as a side note, notice that in John 5:29, there's no gap between the resurrection of the just and the unjust because on the non premill view, the correct view in my humble opinion, there's no gap. They all the judge the judgment of the righteous and the unrighteous dead happens all at the same time at the great white throne judgment, not a judgment at the beginning of the millennium for the good guys and at the end of the millennium for the bad guys. All right, so the books were opened and a book of life was opened. Now let me compare a, the pre-mill and non-pre-mill view on this book of life. On the non-pre-mill view, as I've said, Christians and non-Christians are being judged at the same time at the so-called general resurrection. It means the general resurrection means the resurrection of the just and the unjust. So Christians are being judged from the book of life. That's why there's two sets of books or two two books. Well, there's the plural books. That's for the dead. That's for the uh, unrighteous dead, the bad guys. And then there's another book. That's the book of life. That's for the good guys. No problem. It's simple on the non-premill view. It happens all at the same time. Premills can't do that, though, because they said the Christians had already received their judgments before the millennium a thousand years earlier. And this great white throne judgment is after the millennium. And so what's the book of life be in there? We know the books for the dead, the wicked dead. We can understand that. No problem. But the premills got to answer this question. Why are there? Why is the book of life there when the righteous dead aren't being judged, aren't being resurrected in order to be judged? That's already happened a thousand years earlier. Well, here's some possible solutions for the pre-mill view. It could be the book of life is mentioned not to show that Christians are being judged and written into that book, into that book of life or being read from that book of life. Rather, it's to show that the wicked dead aren't going to be in it, just as a contrast, like 9099, here's the book of life, you ain't there, dead Christians, you're going into these these plural books, the bad books, the book of the dead, if you will, so you're not going to be here. Well, actually, that's reasonable. Or a pre-mill solution might be that the book of life has to be there to judge the unglorified Christians who were saved during the millennium. Remember, before the millennium, when Jesus comes back, he transfigures and re- transfigures the living Christians into glorification, and he raises the dead Christians into glorifications. However, the non-saved mortal people who are alive when Jesus comes back are still alive, and so they just enter into the millennium unsaved, and then somebody might get them saved while they're in the millennium. They might have mortal descendants who are saved, and so maybe these are the ones that are getting saved before the great white throne at the end of the millennium. Now, I personally think all that's absolute nonsense, but it is logical. You could save the premill view, the premill problem of why the book of life there is open at the end when the Christians have already been written or read from the book of life a thousand years earlier, premill. All right, the last part of verse 12 says, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books. That's books, plural, according to their deeds. Now, some people might say, ah, but isn't this salvation by works? No, it's not. It's damnation by works. Righteous people are justified by faith, who are justified by faith, have works as the evidence of their prior justification. So justification by faith is the root of their salvation. The works are the fruit of their salvation. This is standard Protestant stuff here. Galatians 5, 6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. What matters is faith working through love, not your works. James 2, 17 through 20, In the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. There's the, the, the fruit of your salvation is works. I won't go into that. That's standard doctrine, which I'm assuming everybody knows. But that's for Christians. But now the dead people are being judged into the 
the were judged for, from their deeds, which were written into those books. That's they were. That shows that they were damned. They were condemned by what was written in the books. So salvation is by grace. Damnation is by works. We go now to Revelation chapter 20, verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Now, I don't know what John saw in his vision, but death and, and Hades is a symbol of death, because Hades means death. It means the grave sometimes, but it, it also means death sometimes. The sea is probably mentioned because of all those who perished in the judgment of Noah's flood. A lot of dead people there. How about in the Red Sea when the Pharaoh and his armies went under? That's speculation. Who knows? It sounds good. The point is, there's nowhere that dead people can be found. There's nowhere that they're not going to be raised from their resting place and judged. Every one of them according to their deeds. Go to Revelation 20, verses 14 through 15. We'll finish up Revelation chapter 20. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So here we see death and Hades just as powerless as the dragon. The dragon, remember, the red dragon. He's already been thrown into the lake of fire in a previous verse, previous passage in Revelation as well as the sea beast and the land beast, they went in there too. And now anything, any human being that was rebelling against God and who had died, gone. Death and Hades thrown into, death, into the lake of fire is a symbol of the fact that death has been conquered. There's not going to be any more death when Jesus brings down the new Jerusalem to earth. It's over. Death is finished. If anyone's name was not found in the book of life, that would be Christians. He was thrown into the lake of fire. you got two choices, lake of fire or the book of life. Now, Lake of Fire is the well-known symbol for hell. That's a difficult verse for those who deny hell and eternal judgment. Lake of Fire. And, of course, it's a symbol. I don't know what hell is going to be like in other places. It says it's, it's uh, eternal darkness, I think you see in one place. But let's just put it this way. It ain't going to be pleasant. I suppose I should mention here that the second death is in contradistinction to the first death. The first death means the separation of the spirit from the body and the second death is the separation of the Spirit from God forever and ever. Ladies and gentlemen, we have finished Revelation chapter 20. In our next audio, we'll talk about the New Jerusalem. The good news is going to begin now. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one. <laughs>